take us here. Without our keys, our car doesn't serve much of a purpose now, does it? We'll leave here this afternoon and we'll go home and we will use our keys to get inside of our house. It'll grant us access into our house so that we may use it and enjoy it. Well, what I want to give you today is the key to the book of Ephesians. Turn there, if you will, Ephesians chapter 1. Just as we have physical keys that grant us access to things and places, there are keys in Scripture that open up these books of the Bible. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, there is a two-word prepositional phrase that is the key that unlocks the book. It is the phrase found in verse 3, in Christ. In Christ. Understanding these words will have a huge impact on your spiritual life, and it will have a huge impact on how you probably view this book. In my opinion, it is probably the deepest theology found in the Bible in these chapters. Put it simply, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 shows us how the believer is put in Christ. And it starts with election and it goes on to predestination and, and faith and repentance and believing in the gospel of Jesus. Chapter 4 shows us what happens when we are in Christ. We're put into a new body, which is called the church. And this was a mystery in things past, in times past. In chapters 5 and 6 in the book of Ephesians show the result of being united or being in Christ. Namely, how do we live a sanctified life that brings honor and glory to the Savior? Read with me, if you will, Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Father, take this text, mold it into our lives, May we be as Play-Doh this morning. Shape us, Lord, so that we may know the riches and the sufficiency of being in your Son, Jesus, so that we may live a life victorious in this dark and fallen world. Thank you for all the resources that you have abundantly provided, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The title of this message this morning is Our Sufficiency in Christ. And I've broken this study, this text, into three major headings. I'll give you those up front. First of all, we are going to look at a glorious reality. A glorious reality. Secondly, we're going to come across a grim reprimand. A grim reprimand. And thirdly, 
we're going to have a godly reminder. A glorious reality, a grim reprimand, and a godly reminder. Took me a while to come up with those. Let's look at the first part of the verse. What is this glorious reality? Blessed be the God and Father. That section shows us the designer of our sufficiency. Blessed. It is the Greek word, and I'll mispronounce this, logitos. Now that must sound very familiar to you. We get the English word eulogy from this word. A eulogy is something spoken at a funeral, and it's a means of speaking well about that person. It'd be horrible to go to a funeral, and they're giving the eulogy, and they're just cursing the guy in the casket. I think he already has it bad enough. No, we speak well about that person. To bless means to speak well of someone, to praise them. Basically, it is to say that they are good. Well, God is good. Jesus himself said to the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, verse 19, that God alone is good. Consider, if you will, even this this concept of blessing or the goodness of God the Father is what is going on in Revelation chapter 5 in the heavenly realms. John writes... Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Why is God the Father to be blessed Why is he to be praised? Well, first of all, just for who he is as God. I'm going to hit you with a barrage of attributes and verses about God. If you're taking notes, you will not be able to keep up. You're forewarned. Think about who God is in his being. He is spirit, John 4, 24. He is love, 1 John 4, 8. He is invisible, Colossians 1, 15. He is unsearchable, Psalm 145, verse 3. He is incorruptible, Romans 1, 23. He is eternal, Psalm 90, verse 2. He is immortal, 1 Timothy 1, 17. He is omnipotent, Genesis 17, 1. He is omniscient, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. He is omnipresent, 
Psalm 139, verse 7. He is immutable. Psalm 102, verses 26 through 27. God is wise. Romans 16, 27. God is glorious. Exodus 15, 11. God is holy. Psalm 99, verse 9. God is just. Deuteronomy 32, 4. God is true. John 17, 3. God is righteous. Ezra 9, 15. God is good. Psalm 25, verse 8. God is gracious. Psalm 116, verse 5. God is faithful, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. God is merciful, Exodus 34, verse 6. God is patient, Numbers 14, verse 18. God is jealous, Joshua 24, 19. God is compassionate, 2 Kings 13, 23. God is sovereign, Acts 4, 24. God is infinite, Jeremiah 23, 24. God is self-sufficient. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. God is so transcendent, so greater, so unlike us in his being, who he is, he alone is worthy to be praised. This fact is is even seen, if you would take your minds and consider that even people before being sentenced to hell will bow the knee to Christ declare that he is Lord all to the glory of the Father God is worthy of praise and blessing whether you believe him or not secondly we're to bless the Father for what he has done for believers look in the context of Ephesians right here What has God done for us? Well, think about verse 4. As he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He elected us, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Jumping over the verse 5, it says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons, These blessings from the Father have come because God himself is blessed. In a sense, we cannot take away or try to separate the blessings of salvation from the blesser who gives salvation. Now think what Paul is ultimately saying here in this verse. As believers, we have sufficiency We have everything we need because we are in Christ Jesus. But the designer of that plan of giving us to Christ and placing us in Christ is none other than God the Father. Let's move on. Blessed be the God and Father. Notice what it says next. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on and gives us the demonstration of our sufficiency. Notice the adjective are. The the word literally means belonging to us. Well, 
What demonstrates that Jesus Christ belongs to us in this section? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the word Lord. If Jesus is the Lord of our life, then he is ours. It's the evidence, the proof. It's the demonstration that we are in Christ if, if, if Christ is our Lord. Now, the Greek word for Lord is kurios. It means he to whom a person or thing belongs to. To put it simply, it just means master. Now, in the ancient Greek language, this term was most often used of this, a person who owns slaves. The Greek word for slaves is doulos. Believers in the Bible are often called slaves of God. You won't find it in our English translation because we have... such an abhorrence to the term slave. Yet, in the Greek, that's what the word actually means. Consider some examples. The apostle Paul calls himself a slave in Romans 1, verse 1. Timothy is called a slave of Christ and God in Philippians 1, 1. Peter himself calls himself a slave of God, 2 Peter 1, 1. The Apostle John calls himself a slave of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Jude calls himself a slave of Christ, Jude 1. James calls himself a slave of Christ, James 1, 1. You'll notice one thing that is in all of those references that I gave. It's right at the beginning of the book, every one of them. It is basically these writers saying, this is not even my message. It's the message of my master. He owns me. I have to deliver his message. Put it simply, every believer is a slave, a doulos of their Lord, their kurios, Jesus To put it another way, you cannot have a Lord unless you have a slave. Christ can't be Lord unless he has a people that are his possession. What is the chief characteristic about being a slave? Well, they obey their master. They obey their master. John 15, 14, Jesus said to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, the apostle John writes, and by this we know that we have come to know God if we keep his commandments. Here Paul in Ephesians shows us our glorious reality that it comes from the Father. And we know that reality is ours 
if we are a slave of Christ? Is he our master? Put it very simply, we can know that Jesus is ours. And we have assurance of our salvation by the habitual fruit of obeying him. Is that the habit of our lives? Jump back to Ephesians. Notice what it says moving on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this next phrase. Who has blessed us in Christ. Paul goes on to show us the distribution of our sufficiency. He has blessed us in Christ. How has God the Father distributed blessings and sufficiency? By placing believers in Christ. And the question that I would always struggle with and wrestle with is, what does it mean to be in Christ? That's a favorite uh, term of Paul. Well, to put it very simply, it means to be joined to, to be attached to, to be united with Christ Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus and his high priestly prayer. This is in the the shadow of the cross as, as he's going to be betrayed that night. This is what was deepest on his heart before carrying out the sin debt. In John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus prays for all future believers. He says, I do not ask for these only, the disciples there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, in you and me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice those terms that keep on popping up in his prayer. The terms of unity of Christ being in the believer, joined to the believer, united to the believer. That's what was racing through Christ's head before the cross. 
another example of this off the top of my head, consider just a few chapters earlier in John chapter 15, where Jesus gives the description of, hey, that he's the vine. We're to be the branches. You cut off the, the branches from the, from the trunk, from the vine, from the root source, they die. But if the branches are connected, there's life and fruitfulness. We must be in Christ. Consider even the context of the book of Ephesians. Believers are placed in Christ by the Father. And this is visibly seen. We can actually visibly see this even right now. We're in a church. The church is literally the body of Christ. And Christ is the head. It is the representation of Christ in this world. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, it reads, The Father has put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, further blow this idea out. It, it, it magnifies it Now consider it today. Consider yourself. Consider your body. Don't do this. What if you're able to detach your head from your body? What use is your body then? Your body would be useless. It would lose its heat grow cold, you'd be dead. But since our head is attached to our bodies, we can function properly. Some a little more properly than others, as I'm, my knees seem with age to continuously hurt more and more. Well, it's the same in our lives. We only function well as a church, as as many members, as parts that compose the body. We can only truly function if we're connected to Christ, our head, our controller, our master, the one who gives the marching orders. That's what it means to be in Christ. Consider even the two sacraments that have been given to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both sacraments symbolize being united with Christ. In baptism, we are saying that I am believing, I'm making the profession publicly that I'm united with Christ, with his death, burial, and resurrection, that my old self died. And Christ died for my sins, and I'm counting on that. That the old man is now powerless and dead. And God has created in me a new heart through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Because Christ rose from the dead, I'm a new person. And I have this glorious reality of of being united with him again someday. 
Same thing of communion. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ. His earthly life. It's unleavened. Leaven usually was spoken about and used as an illustration of sin. Well, Christ is sinless. It speaks about his perfect life. The bread is broken up in the pieces and we, and we drink the wine or, or the juice and that, set, that symbolizes his broken body that he has crushed for our iniquities. And think what we do with the bread and the juice. We drink it. We ingest it. It becomes, in a sense, part of us. It's a physical symbol of what should be a reality. And it also points to his resurrection. Jesus told his disciples to be continuously partaking of of communion until he comes again because it would be a proclamation that he is coming again. It's a proclamation that our home is in heaven and one day we'll be sitting with Christ at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Being in Christ means being united with Christ, being placed inside of Christ, being connected to Christ. Okay. How? How are we connected to Christ? How can we be unified and united with Christ? How is this even possible? What, are we Siamese twins? Put it simply, I use a big word, and probably just lied if I said I put it simply, then I'm going to use a big word. <laughs> we united, we're united in Christ by imputation. To impute or imputation means to attribute or reckon something to another person. We are in Christ because God the Father has reckoned or counted, imputed our sins to Jesus. And Jesus paid for the believer's sins on the cross. However, this is not enough. This would not be enough. This would not make us righteous. It would just make us blameless. We would be sinless and no sins that count against us, but we wouldn't be holy and righteous and perfect. We'd be neutral. We'd be like Switzerland. And so what takes place is a double imputation. The moment you believe upon Christ and trust in him, God takes the righteousness, the perfect work and merit of Jesus Christ and gives that to you and treats you like you are perfect. Let me put it simply. I remember as a kid, we don't usually see these as often. Go in the school and you would, you know, have the scales. 
And you'd weigh stuff out. You'd put your object here, then you'd have to find weights in here, and you'd balance it out. Find what something weighed. Well, let's count. Let's look at the scale of sin. Here it is. Jesus. <coughs> me. You. Our sin. What happens if you do this on a scale? Oh, here's the standard. Where am I? I'm down there. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. Consider what happens on the scale of sin. Now consider the scale of righteousness. We need a weighty righteousness. God. Me. Jesus is righteous. A weighty righteousness. I have none. All my good deeds are filthy rags. So that In Christ, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. There's nothing to brag about in that. Christ did it all, He paid for the sin. That even an eternity in hell would not be sufficient to pay off. And he gave us a foreign righteousness, his own righteousness. And we can't even be righteous in one thing and faithful in one thing. And he's faithful in everything. Let me summarize everything in Ephesians before we get too bogged down. The believer has sufficiency in this life and even to eternity because God the Father has placed them in Christ. The believer trusts that God the Father has placed their sin on the God-man, Jesus, on the cross. And the believer is trusting that God now credits Jesus' righteousness to them. That's all done by faith. The evidence of this is that Jesus' commands are habitually obeyed because now that person sees Jesus as Lord. This brings us to the last section of Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Notice what it says next. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lastly, Paul goes on to write to the degree of our sufficiency. 
the Christian is sufficient because we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. To put it very simply, if you have truly trusted in the Lord, you have everything you need. You lack nothing. Peter expressed the same truth in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, when he said, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Put it simply, God's not holding out on us. When we call God a good father, he is a good father. He doesn't skimp on the blessings. God has given to the believer everything that we need for salvation, life, and sanctification, godliness. Now notice in Ephesians what these blessings are. They're spiritual. The Greek word here for spiritual is interesting. It always is used in the New Testament to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, this means that God is blessing us with all that is possible to be given to us through the Holy Spirit. Everything. Where do these blessings come from? Well, look in the text. It says, from the heavenly places. And what does that mean? I think sometimes we read these and we just, instead of getting the big picture, we just focus on one little thing and we lose sight of the glorious reality of what God is communicating. It means way more than just heaven. It basically means everything in the supernatural realm of God. Everything. Prominent pastor wrote about this. Our life is in the supernatural. In the heavenlies. We commune with God, our Father, and he's there. Our home is there. Our Savior is there. Our friends are there. Our loved ones are there. Our name is there. Our throne is there. Our room is there. It's in the heavenlies that we live, and we're trapped in this tension of being heavenly citizens with an earthly sojourn. What God is saying here is that these supernatural blessings are the work of the Trinity. We read this verse and we don't really see the full Trinity, but it is there. These blessings come from the Father through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. So what are these supernatural blessings? I put it in one simple word, salvation. And I think that also is something that we use 
and we only look at it in the narrow sense, and we don't see the grand scope. To kind of cut it apart and show everything, well, what is salvation? According to the Bible, well, it starts with election. God choosing us for salvation. So I'm going to go over 12 of these things that are really heavenly, supernatural blessings that we could not strive for or achieve on our own. God has to give them to us. Election. God choosing us for salvation before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. Secondly, predestination. God ensuring that we'll be saved. I love this. I struggle against sin so much that I need confidence that I will reach my home. God ensures it. He predestines the believer. Ephesians 1.5. Election, predestination. Third, an inheritance. To have all that is possible for God to give us. God has already put that aside. Ephesians 1.11. Four. And I do place it here. Notice all those things happen in eternity past. Election, predestination. He sets inside an inheritance for us. What comes next? God's word. A lot of times we don't see this as a heavenly blessing or having a heavenly origin, but think about it. It is the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 says that scripture is God-breathed. It's the words. It's breathed out by God himself. Because the blessing of the word, we can know who God is. We wouldn't figure that out on our own. We would be like the men in Athens. The best we can do is make an altar to an unknown God. That's the very best. Fifth, regeneration. This is where God the Holy Spirit uses that word and convicts and transforms our heart, giving us a new heart, taking out a heart that was bent on sin and loving sin and giving us a heart that is living, desiring the Lord and the things of the Lord and hating those things that we once loved. John chapter 3 shows this. To regeneration, what's next in this line of salvation? Faith and repentance. I think all of these from regeneration on for a while are, happen so quickly. If you want to look at it this way, here's how I would look at it. I used to play pool. Regeneration is like the cue ball, and it's being hit, and it's hitting three balls at once. The cue ball sets everything in motion, even though it touches these three balls at the same time, and they go out their separate ways. 
even though it looks like that it's all happening simultaneously. It's all the result of the, the cue ball smacking those together. So what are the results of regeneration? Having a new spirit, a new heart, becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus. Here's a gift from heaven. Faith and repentance. Both faith and repentance are gifts of God. Ephesians 2.8 shows that faith is a gift of God. And Acts 11, verse 18, shows that repentance is a gift of God. Because the person now has a new nature through regeneration, they desire to turn away from sin, repentance, and the trust in the gospel. That's faith. What happens after that? It's another one of those balls tangenting off because of regeneration. Justification. Justification just basically means are we declared right before God? The answer is yes. We've already discussed how this happens. Our sins being placed on Christ. His righteousness being placed on us. And therefore we have no fear to stand in God's throne. We can come before God Because our Lord whom we're connected to, Jesus Christ, is our great high priest. We have boldness to approach him. Romans 5.1 shows that. What else happens? What else is a blessing? Another one. Holy Spirit indwells us. We have the means to carry out the Christian life. We have the power to carry out the Christian life. And think of all the means and everything that the Spirit does for us. I think primarily, or at least my mind goes to what Paul says in Romans 8. Even those times when in my jumbled up mind, in my mess, when I can't figure things out, I'm praying to God, It's like the Spirit interprets that. Looks into my soul and those cryings that are too deep for words, the Spirit communicates that to God. What else is another ball heading out? Ninthly, adoption. We're placed into God's family. We become God's children and God becomes our Father. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6 speak about this. Because all of this is a reality, a lot of times we just stop with salvation right there. But it's not just a one-time deal in the past, like, hey, I, I was saved. No, it, it's a past, present, and future reality. I was saved, and guess what? I'm being saved, and I will be saved. What's the tenth glorious gift? Sanctification. Being transformed daily and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, the one whom I love. John 17, 17 speaks of this. Resurrection would be the eleventh thing. God promises us to bring us to him for where he is we will be. 
And he promises that we won't lose our humanity in it. Think about what a human is. We have soul and body. (coughs) Angels don't have a physical body. God is spirit. We look at the lower animals. They have bodies, but they don't have a soul. In a sense, we're a little lower than the angels, but we're above the animals. We're this unique creature, and one day there's this hope of a resurrection, not just my spirit being with the Lord, but the Lord raising my body and giving me a new body that seeks to enjoy him forever. And well, how will this happen? The last thing that's involved with this is glorification being made perfect, being fit to enjoy God's, uh, to enjoy God eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promise, the promise of glorification. And it is such a reality that in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul uses it about believers in the past tense. It's like Paul is saying, look at you being with the Lord forever, being made perfect, It's a done deal. It's like it already has happened. I don't know about you, but looking through those 12 things, all I have to say is, wow. Think of the blessings that Christ has given to us. Think of our sufficiency by being placed in Christ. What else do we need? God does not come up to us and, and give us a little handful of blessings and say, Here, I hope this lasts you in your life and you can make it through. You might want to ration that. It's like he backs up the dump truck and the blessings come all over us and drown us. Look, in Christ, what he has given us would be more than enough to to, to be sufficient for us if we lived a trillion lifetimes. May our hearts overflow with thanksgiving and thanks living for God, for he is good. This brings us to our second heading. First one took a while. A grim reprimand. I'm not saying this in any way to try to be controversial, try to stir up trouble. Lord knows I've wrestled with this this week and for over four months as I've been thinking through and praying through some of these things. I first thought for even a sermon, I had the outline was on It was called Ichabod or Emmanuel from Ezekiel chapter 10. Here's the problem. We can believe all this, that yeah, Christ has provided everything. All I need is in Christ. The real question I have to ask myself And I find myself failing at this so often. And you need to inspect yourself as this. 
Does your actions line up with what you say you believe? Do we really believe Christ is enough? I can see a few ways in our actions that we honestly say, you know, no, Christ isn't enough. This is the point where it's like, okay, we have the reality, but now what's the diagnosis? We'll get into the treatment. What are some of these ways? Well, first of all, I see it as this. A lot of times by our actions, we dishonor the word. That's the first thing. We dishonor the word. Basically what this is, is neo-Gnosticism. Neo-new-Gnosticism is an old heresy that basically would say, you know what, to be uh, right with God to do this, you need a secret knowledge that is not there for most other people. It's really the say, you know what, what God has given me here is not enough. I need more. This is not enough for my life. God's blessings are not enough. His words that he has written down, it's not enough. And so, do we perceive a need for a new revelation from God to grow more spiritual? Seems awkward to me that many people, and I understand it, we're now a feelings-based society rather than a truth-based people. Why people would go so far off into like, Feelings-based things. I need more. I need to feel this way. I need to become more spiritual is what people are striving after. I need this experience of God's presence. How many people are really saying, no, I need to be more righteous. I need to be more like Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I think sometimes we do this, we we, we basically by our actions say, you know what, this is not enough, this is not sufficient. What God has done and placed me in his words that he has written down and spoken are not enough. How is this taking shape? Well, there's a, a movement that has been old and has been gaining steam in recent years and coming and just wreaking havoc into churches. It's, it's the movement of contemplative prayer. It is exploding everywhere. I went online and checked uh, even the list of Christian colleges that are just buying into this and oh my goodness it's like they all are this practice is nothing more than an eastern new age mysticism all they do is they wrap it with the English vocabulary Christian vocabulary 
The way I like to look at it is this. It's like if I took a bunch of dung, made a cake, and then I put a nice layer of frosting over it. It looks appealing. But what's at the core is just filthy and wrong and unbiblical. What it seeks to do is to empty your mind. The focus on the, the presence of Jesus and Jesus will give you a new message and speak to your soul. And therefore you can be living and abiding in God's presence. Myself and a friend the other week were somewhat forced to go into uh, an area where this was being done in practice, and it was just appalling. People would, would, it seemed like, would get more praise by coming up with the more outlandish claims that God was speaking to them. The more outlandish the claims, most people would be like, oh, that's amazing. Somebody literally claimed, yes, I was at home and I was focusing on the presence of Jesus and the doorbell rang. It's like God is calling in my life. I looked outside and there was nobody there. Now, as a kid, I called that doorbell ditching. And I can give you example of example of this. Consider this. This is being practiced at a lot of places, and you might be practicing it without even knowing it. Consider the devotional Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. That's a very popular book. It sold over 5 million copies so far, and I'm sure some here have read it and some love it. Here's a woman claiming that in her silence, God spoke to her and she wrote down God's words and published them. You might say, well, what's wrong with that? It infers that the Bible is not enough. Secondly, I would question this. It used to be if somebody said they spoke for God, that God gave them a message, and they wrote it down and gave it to other people. They were called a prophet. Now, if there's one thing wrong in that book, and I've done the research, there's many. They used to kill false prophets, claiming to come in God's name and not truly being a prophet of the Lord. Nobody would just do that haphazardly. It was a serious thing. This movement has taken many different forms, and, and yet I want you to consider this. Scripture is complete. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says it's complete and sufficient. When it says all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the, the man of God a believer may be complete, equipped for every good work. This has even gone on, and in, in, in it's, it's similar along the line that this practice of 
the sacred reading of scripture, or Lectio Divina. And this is, uh, had inroads well into the Reformed church, even though it's practiced as you do the research on that, it's not biblical either. It's the same type of mysticism. It's basically saying we could come to God, worship God by our own means, and we don't have to, to do it by what God has said. It's basically saying this is insufficient for telling me how to worship God and how to understand the word. Many churches around here are practicing it, and many Reformed guys are starting to just slobber all over this practice. And it's sad. I don't want to throw the, uh, some of these faithful men in the reform movement, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But it's sad that I think that Piper, John Piper, and subscribes to it. You go on to Timothy Keller's website. His church has a, a large section devoted to it. And really all it is is mysticism. It's saying that the Bible is not enough. And I'm sure those men would not say that out loud. But there's a disconnect in in reason and their practice. I think there's also denial. There's a Gnosticism. And and we see this a lot when it comes down to the sufficiency of Scripture when it comes to our counseling practices. What is labeled Christian psychology today? Now the Bible's not enough. For, for dealing with people's problems, they would say. So they need psychological methods and training. And so 12-step recovery programs are being embraced by churches. I don't have the time, but it, again, the belief truly is in these practices is to take what the world has come up concerning the soul... Remember, the world has fallen, has a fallen nature, has a fallen mind. Tries to mix a little bit of scripture in it and saying, here, this will be better. It really denies the sufficiency of scripture and that we have everything we need in Christ. More could be said about that. I, I see this in another big overarching way that we need to be warned about, and that's discrediting prayer. This is the practice of what I would call antinomianism. Prefix, anti, means against. Ism is a belief structure. The root means law. So really what it is is a belief structure. I'm going to live like there is no law. We practically deny the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of what he has given to us when we actually pray for God for, to give us stuff that he's already given to us. And I'll show you how that relates to antinomianism. And this is extremely convicting to me. Looking back over my years as a Christian, how often have you prayed for more joy, more peace, more love, more grace, or more of the Holy Spirit, or patience. 
When we do such things, we are practically denying that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I don't need more grace. God has already given me all the grace I need. Think about when the Apostle Paul was struggling. Lord, take away this thorn in my flesh. Jesus' reply, my grace is sufficient. What do I need? I mean, saying that, most people probably like, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say we need to be filled with the Spirit? Yeah. But think about this, and I think you guys already can know this by yourselves. A prayer for joy, peace, love, patience, and the Spirit can be done rightly or wrongly. When I'm asking God for more of the Holy Spirit, think what that's implying. Lord, I would have obeyed you. But it really isn't my fault. You're holding out on me and I don't have enough of God the Holy Spirit to obey. If you give me more of the Spirit, then I'll obey and I'll do this thing. So Lord, I need you, come on. But until you do that, really isn't my fault to sin. To think about it logically and biblically, God is infinite. The Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is infinite. How can you have more of something or someone that is infinite? You can't. To put it simply, uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit just means to be, have him be the dominating factor or force, the dominating push and person in your life. It's what it is. We use the word filled this way all the time, don't we? That person's filled with wrath. He's filled with anger. He's filled with love. He's filled with joy. That just means that emotion is trumping everything else at that moment. It's in the dominant position, control over all the other emotions you might be feeling but are lowered because that's taking precedence. So it is with God. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that, hey, I'm, you know, I'm at 85% of the Spirit and I need to fill up the tanks. It just means, hey, God is the one dominating and controlling me. I'm living to please Him. Again, I think this things are dangerous because behind it all, we're blaming God. Lord, I would show more patience if you'd just give me more. Now, I will say this, to pray for more joy, peace, love, patience, more of the Holy Spirit is fine if it's done in a confessional way. Lord, I have enough joy, all the riches of patience, 
you've given to me. The real issue is not you, Lord, it's me. I'm choosing to sin. <laughs> Forgive me. We also discredit, use discrediting prayer when we ask for things that God has condemned or does not want us to have. One last quick rebuke. Sometimes I think we discount the gospel. This is the third thing. I would call this legalism. And so we see this today. We have new methodologies of evangelism. We seek not to offend people by pointing out the truth like, hey, you're a sinner and you need a savior. We make it more palatable. We promote easy believism over everything and we neglect to tell that the sinner must repent and have faith. We discount the gospel when we treat an unbeliever with hatred or harshness. I mean, come on. We expect morality from them apart from the Holy Spirit, the regenerating power of the Spirit. And I think what this really shows, like the Pharisees, is a sinful self-righteousness. I'm acting righteous. You have to, too. Come on, do it. We do this sometimes of when we're putting political activism over discipleship. So Christian groups go crazy over, well, we've got to march against this and sign this petition and do this. And look at those things are fine and dandy and good and all. But we don't change the world through politics. Ask how that turned out for the Pharisees. Read the words of Christ as, as they produced a more moralistic society. and Consider what the Savior said to them. You want to change the world? Preach the gospel to every person you meet until they either repent or die. Lastly, I give you a godly reminder, and this should be the encouragement before we go. I know I'm long because Phil is standing back there, and he's starting to get antsy. Just pointing that out. Love you, brother. What shall we do then? What's the antidote? First of all, devour the word. Job 23, 12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my necessary portion of food. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and a delight in my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. We're called in Romans chapter 12, verse 2 to renew our minds now think what that implies. It means that our minds are not good and we need to renew them by God's word so that we may be able to test and discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So I ask you and encourage you, how much are you in God's word? 
think a lot of times we narrow down the Christian life to like, read my devotional this morning, I'm good to go. Let me put that to you in a physical body health ways. That would be like saying, I've ate chocolate cake for breakfast, I'm good to go. And that's all I'm eating. Our meal is the word. Devotionals are great. This place, just like dessert is, that can't be our main feast. What is a devotional usually? Well, let me throw one line and then a bunch of commentary, and it's not the word of God. It's somebody's thoughts about something about the word of God. We need to get God's word in us as much as possible. Secondly, depth in prayer. Depth in prayer. Consider that many times Jesus instructed his disciples in the Gospel of John to ask in his name. To ask in his name means to just do what would be consistent with Christ's character. How can we ask things in Christ's name? Well, we have to know Christ. We should desire what Christ desires. Is your prayer for more godliness? To be conformed to more like Christ? Hopefully it is. Lastly, delighting in the gospel. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Delight in the finished work of redemption. Delight in God the Father, blessing you by placing you in Christ. And that all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms are brought and applied to you by God the Holy Spirit. It's in light of that we can stop and focus our attention to the finished work of Christ. As we take communion, I I, I beg you, focus on Christ. Understand what he's done. That the work is finished. Delight in him. Focus on some of the, the aspects of that all we have and all we need are in Christ. And be thankful. Praise God and praise the Father for what Christ has done. The elements are over there. Let me pray and, and then you can take communion. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we have access to all of what we need and more through the Spirit. Lord, may we live that way today and not just today for the rest of our lives until we see you in glory. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. And we bless you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.